getting attacked by animals that kill you and tear you apart and eat you. That was the beginning of the shamanic transformation, a death and rebirth experience in which the reconstruction rebirth was the animals coming together and putting the shaman back together and incorporating within the shaman. From the shaman's point of view, the experience was that they became these animals. They traveled through the universe. They transformed personally into these animals and experiences. Welcome to the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, Episode 20. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Winkleman. Dr. Michael Winkleman is a PhD at the University of California, Irvine, and a master's in public health at the University of Arizona. Although retired from the School of Human Evolution and Social Change at Arizona State University, Dr. Winkleman has continued to bring forth insights through his independent academic research in Brazil. His research focuses on identifying universal patterns of healing ritual and their underlying biological mechanisms. With a strong background in the evolutionary origins of shamanism and early hominids' healing capacities, his works tie together multiple disciplines, building cross-cultural intersections between shamanism, psychedelics, and alterations of consciousness. He is the author of numerous books, Shamans, Priests, and Witches, Supernatural as Natural, and more recently, The Supernatural After the Neuroturn, published in 2019. You can find his recent publications in Frontiers of Psychology and Frontiers in Pharmacology. So without further ado, welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have you on. Well, great. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about some of the things that have really driven my interest as an academic over the last 30 something years. I think that, uh, you know, there's going to be some interesting things for your listeners today. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And, and before we really get into the technical stuff, I, you know, you had this one buzzword to describe your living in Brazil, which is permaculture. And I wanted to ask you just a little bit about what it's like to be maintaining a permaculture lifestyle in Brazil. Um, cause I thought that was really interesting. Well, I mean, at one level, you know, it's really easy because it kind of maintains itself once you get it going. Um, but you know, the idea here is, you know, basically I'm growing fruit trees, not, you know, lettuce and tomatoes that I got to you know, plant again every year. Uh, but I'm also using a method that's called a, a centropic method that, uh, sort of helps bring a, a different environment for the plants that, you know, basically involves building a pile of, of wooden trash around the basis of all your trees. And so all the termites go for the rotten material and leave your fruit trees alone. Hmm. Of course, they're decomposing the, the branches and the trunks so that you got more fertilizer. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm just, you know, I've been a vegetarian most of my life. I really enjoy fruit. And I decided that that was my backup plan here. I was going to plant fruit trees. So I got about, you know, 30 kinds of fruit trees on my property here where I live. And I got about a thousand fruit trees planted in another place. That's you know, 50 miles from here that uh, I try to keep going. It's in, it's about fifth year now. So eventually someday I should have lots of fruit coming from it. Hmm. That's so cool. So, so you just pretty much your own farmer, your own grower, you eat a lot of what you make and, and all that, or, you know, how does that, yeah. how does that work? Do you have to buy from other people or, I mean, well, you know, we, we pretty much get, you know, all of our food from, you know, not just what we do here. I mean, but this does include chickens and eggs on our property, um, but also from a local organic fair. Mm. You know, so we get our lettuces and vegetables and stuff like that, you know, growing locally and then the fruit complements it. But yeah, it's a you know, lifestyle that's focused on eating healthy things and eating, you know, things that don't have pesticides on them and 
you know, eating the kind of things that characterize human evolution. I mean, people talk about the, the paleo diet, but in reality, paleolithic people probably, for the most part, didn't have meat constituting more than 10% of their diet, maybe 20. Exceptions like the Eskimo, the Aleut, you know. Everybody else, paleo diet was, you know, tubers and seeds and nuts and fruits and whatever else that you could find. So I, I think that's much more paleo than what most people today think is paleo. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, with that in mind, I, I think we can kind of shift this into the technical world. So you're already kind of introducing some more or less niches in, in our own diet patterns and, you know, how you can gravitate towards some food sources, some, you know, berries versus meat products or animal products. And, you know, we're going to we're going to slowly as we go through this conversation, try to build this, I guess, framework for how human behavior has evolved throughout many different centuries, how our consumable habits, how our uh, intersect with our behavioral habits. And so I guess let's let's start with the very first question, which is what are cognitive niches? Uh, and I, I think that is really our, our starting fundamental building block that we can then use to construct this whole evolutionary framework and, and so forth. But yeah, what are cognitive niches? And let's well, just start there. Well, cognitive niche is the most significant development in the evolution of humans. Uh, people today ask, you know, do we live in a virtual reality? Duh. Yeah. I mean, we live in a reality that is created by the models that we have acquired from our family, our friends, our associates, our culture. So the cognitive niche is, is the idea that we have a set of capacities that are designed to learn about how to interact with the environment. And then the cultural niche is the notion that these physical abilities for learning are always programmed by what we acquire from other people. So if you wanna think about it as hardware, software, we evolved a brain that was capable of learning a lot of information, and that brain learns cultural information. In a very fundamental sense, you know, we don't deal with reality. We deal with the information that's filtered through the models that we have acquired for relating to the physical world. But you know, we don't relate to the physical world. I mean, there, some people would say you don't have sensations, you know. You have perceptions of some kind of energy. And then the construction on top of that, you know, energy is your interpretive models that tell you what's out there. Was that a flash of light, you know, from some unknown source, or was that a spirit? Well, if you have a materialist paradigm, it was from some unknown source. If you have a spiritualist paradigm, the spirits pass by. You know, how you perceive the most fundamental sensations, information from the physical world, come through a set of filters. And eventually those filters are exclusively related to your beliefs about the nature of the world. So the cognitive niche is this model that we use to relate to the world. And when we look at people who had relatively simple societies and cultures, what we discover is they had very elaborate niches, frameworks for how to interact with the physical world. And often this required Know, a very extensive set of knowledge about how to prepare the tools and how to prepare the implements, you know, where to go, what time of the year, you know, where you, so for more than a million years, pushing probably, you know, three to 5 million years, our fundamental relationship to the environment has been cultural. We don't rely upon our instincts, rely upon the models that we acquire. So in essence, we live in a virtual reality that of course is not just cultural, 
but it's also highly limited by the, the very kinds of information our brain can pick up. I mean, I, I think the scientists would say, you know, we only pick up five to 10% of the information available in the environment with our human senses. The rest of it we detect with physical instruments. So we get a very limited picture of what the physical reality is like. And on top of that, we construct a model. And this is what enabled human beings to evolve. We created more and more complex models for more effectively extracting from the environment, relating to the physical environment and to social others. And that these have been the tools that have enabled humans to survive. Culture is the fundamental basis from which we know the world. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because I think now as we're looking at, as you said, this digital reality and how things are, are really starting to change in cultures and how we interact with our environment, do you think there's no noticeable ways now that we're detaching from this connection that we have with culture and our environment? And how do you think this is changing our, our more modern way of communicating with each other and, and changing together as a culture? Um, well, you know, I think one of the biggest ways that it's changed is that most people are more focused on what's on their phone <laughs> What's in the reality about them? I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> this is reality for people now, right? You know, it's what comes across on your phone. Now, now, we don't relate to the physical environment in the same way. We're just totally engrossed in a highly delimited and defined cultural configuration that, you know, is our lives. So uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the very loss of contact with the physical environment is at the root of a lot of contemporary you know, personal, social, cultural, public health problems. I mean, you know, people don't have this connection with nature anymore. They live in the constructed environments, you know, weird metal buildings that have strange vibrational patterns. We don't live in touch with nature in any kind of substantial way anymore. We're totally in the constructed environment, and it's mostly constructed right here, you know, on the telephone or, you know, our devices. So, you know, we've lost touch with really, I think, what helps humans maintain an emotional balance, a physical balance, a physiological balance, a psychological balance, which is nature in some fundamental way. Current studies are showing, you know, people who go spend more time in nature get over a lot of depressive symptoms. You know, people who have been unable to, to kick drug addictions, you know, find that, a, you know, a 30-day retreat in nature, all of a sudden, they rewired, they reset, you know, they, they somehow managed to change their relation to that substance. So uh, in, in a sense, our, our human evolution has taken us down a cul-de-sac. You know, we're so highly dependent upon these, you know, extremely culturally contrived visions of the world that, you know, people are more upset about what someone said on their Twitter account than they are about what's happening in the Ukraine or Somalia. I want, to, I want to dig a little bit more into this. I want to back up a little bit into the cognitive niche because, you know, we have this current cognitive niche, which is shifting our attention in specific ways. And before we try to answer the question as to why our attention is gravitating towards these specific objects and not these other objects, which might be better for our mental health, it's like, what is it that a cognitive niche is doing? Is it a specific type of model that describes the properties of reality or our current perception? Is it a cognitive niche that is a model that is constantly growing and you know, I'm, I'm just trying to provide a little bit more substance to this cognitive niche idea. What is it? Is it a model? Is it a set of rules that define the model? Um, I'll, I'll stop there and just kind of see what you okay. think. 
Well, I think you probably are really wanting to ask me about the cultural niche. The cognitive niche is the capacity to be programmed. It's the physiological hardware. And what makes humans so unique is the fact that we can program this hardware in so many different ways. That's the cultural niche. So it's not as if there is a cultural niche. There are, are, are thousands and thousands of cultural and subcultural and even personal niches. Uh, and what that means is that we're, you know, selectively entertaining a very limited bit of information. I mean, if you know, if you put down your phone and walk out into nature, you know, your input totally changes. But I think the cultural niches of today that are based upon these devices are particularly compelling because they tap into some of the deep features of our cognitive niche, what we're oriented to. And I recently was exposed to this notion that the, uh, the, there's a, a group of primates that became the hominids that developed their specialization for survival by basically brachiating on the underside of the canopy to get fruits. So we developed a visual system that was highly attuned to picking up small little dots of color in the canopy, fruits, flowers, buds, bugs, okay? So now we got our little devices and what are they? They're full of little tiny bright things of color. That's why in no time at all, you give a kid an iPhone and the kid doesn't care anything at all about parents or people or anything. They are glued here. Why? Because it has tapped into some of the fundamental elements of the cognitive niche of ancient hominid adaptation. So, you know, we move beyond that very individualistic kind of orientation to the physical world and became adapted cognitively, socially, emotionally for interdependence. I mean, you know, humans can't survive on their own. You know, a baby can't survive, you know, for 11 years, 15 years. Hell, 30 is the new 21, right? You know. We're totally dependent upon social others for our sense of who we are, our well-being, our emotional stability. And so that is what these highly defined niches are getting. You know, people talk about being connected with their tribe. I mean, what they're talking about is a group of people that think like them and provide a reference group for what they think they want to be. So what's happened to us today is I think we've become even more finely tuned to a very specific reference group, peer group, social group that doesn't connect us with the broader swaths of even our own culture, our own society or humanity. We've become sort of trapped into a very limited set of social references that enable us to sort of maintain a sense of self-identity that we've pursued within these new cultural medium, the online you know, access to Twitter and Instagram and all these other kinds of, of communicative medium. Yeah. So I'm curious with with some of the things that you've observed the the presence of growing so exponentially in the United States and in kind of Western culture with this connection to technology, was this something that kind of um, encouraged or inspired you to move down to Brazil to where you are now to further your research and create this lifestyle? And I'm wondering if this was something that played into what uh, inspires your current research where you live. Well, I mean, in a sense, entheogens led me here. But that's not why I came here. Um, but it was just a sense of, a, you know, the kind of things that are happening right now globally, 
you know, the, the kind of, you know, social unrest and you know, just insights into, you know, different possibilities and then the opportunities to do it, you know, the opportunity to take off and come here and be here and, and live in a different environment. You know, I say it's like, you know, pretty much perpetual springtime here, you know, although it gets a little hot in the winter. You know, but, uh, paradox of tropical weather systems, hot in the winter, cold in the summer. Uh, but, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, some specific kind of immediate issue, but something that began with me, you know, in my undergraduate, you know, years. One of the last courses I took was the sociology of the future. And it was like, we are not going to continue on the current growth curve. You know, it doesn't happen in constrained physical systems, things are gonna change. And so I've just always had this kind of apocalyptic view about the future, uh, but also I had the opportunities to see that there was different ways to do things. So when PAS opened up for me to go to Brazil, I went to Brazil. When PAS opened up for me to do research here, I did research here. And when I got the opportunity to take early retirement, I decided that you know a totally different lifestyle was going to be better for me, regardless of whether or not my apocalyptic visions were going to be true or not. So, you know, the kind of thing that's happening in Europe right now, you know, the kind of social unrest that's, you know, just under the surface in the United States, these are all things that I saw coming, you know, in a sense. Uh, even, you know, COVID and you know, all this other stuff. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I was seeing this 20 years ago, you know, this is what's coming down the pike. And I went to some place where I think that the future has a lot better hope than in some of the places that, you know, people live in the Northern hemisphere. Mm. And I, I want to also just jump on one of the terms you used here, which is entheogens. And for our listeners, uh, we're, we're going to jump into that here in a second. Um, mainly in the next question we want to ask you, which is what is the stone date hypothesis? And, you know, we've been slowly detailing this kind of, route where we're humans and we see all these different things we can consume in the environment. We see all these, you know, bright little colors of fruits that we can grab. We get the rewards from consuming them. The sugar makes us feel good and so forth. And so we've kind of set the stage here that we are these animals that are grabbing items in, in the environment and we're consuming these things and it has some effect on us. And so then we arrive at this question, which is what is the stoned ape hypothesis? And I, I'll, I'll let you kind of take it from here and, and tell this story, because I'm, I'm really curious where you want to start with this, but uh, I, I think we can just go for it. So, Okay. Well, for your listeners, entheogen is the idea that there is are substances that have an intrinsic capability to generate internal spiritual experiences. The entheo, theos, God. Jen, the idea that something generates spiritual experiences. And this is an alternative term for what is often referred to as psychedelics and hallucinogens. Um, I prefer the term psychointegrator because my notion about the effects of these substances on the brain is that their principal modes of action is to integrate information out of the unconscious mental structures into consciousness. And they do so through a, a visual modality and in a, a modality that sort of compellingly leads people to see their experiences in terms of encounters with spiritual entities. Now, th this broad concept is the basis of what's been called the stoned ape theory. Um, it's applied to um, the ideas brought forth by Terence McKenna, who wrote a book called Foods of the Gods, The Search for the Original Tree of Knowledge. So what he was looking at was the idea that in our past, when we 
as hominids, hominins, have started consuming theogenic plants, particularly the mushrooms, uh, we underwent a radical evolutionary process. Now, just to clarify my, my vocabulary, hominids, they are common ancestors with the great apes, chimpanzees, gorillas, etc. Hominins are ancestors after that divergence. And so the basic idea that Terence presented was that uh, when our hominin ancestors left the arboreal environment, they left the trees because the savanna was encroaching, uh, they headed down onto the ground and eventually began to you know, scavenge on bovines, cow-like animals, follow the herds around, follow where the, you know, the lions and tigers had killed them and left their carcasses to be scavenged on. And so we encountered eventually psilocybin mushrooms growing in the dung of, of lots of different kinds of, of bovines. And it was the consumption of those mushrooms that was a, a key spark in human evolution. Um, McKenna, writing in the early 1990s, didn't have the kind of data we have today. Uh, I would say that his, his hypotheses were you know, somewhat meager and limited, given that his data was basically you know, personal experiences you know, going to hippie communes and going to raves and stuff like that and eating mushrooms and seeing what happened to people. But you know, the only real scientific evidence he had then was that um, psilocybin increases visual acuity, particularly things such as uh, edge detection. So it enhances ability to identify objects, to find berries, to find animals, to hunt, to gather. So he said, taking this stuff would have made us better foragers, hunters and gatherers. Uh, he also noted that there was a proclivity for increased sexual arousal, and presumably copulation in our ancestors. He also thought that there was a kind of a pro-social sentiment that was engendered by the use of psilocybin that would have reduced uh, sexual competition, uh, more promiscuous sexual relations, confused paternity, and ultimately a communal responsibility for raising children that would have you know, been one of the foundations for human society. And he also pointed out, you know, based upon not only what he personally experienced, but what is reported in many cultures, is that these substances necessarily lead to shamanism, ritual healing, spiritual experiences, mystical concepts, that in essence, there was an origin of religion that can be attributed to the ancient influences of psilocybin and other psychedelics. So the fundamental notion of, of his approach was that, look, you know, look what psilocybin does and trying to project back into the past about what it must have done for our ancient ancestors. But today we're in a, a much better position to assess not only those claims, but a far broader set of claims regarding just what would have been the likely and perhaps even the necessary effects of the incorporation of psilocybin into the ancient diet life ways and ritual of our hominin ancestors. And what we have today are a lot of different kinds of double blind clinical studies and laboratory studies that show us a lot of the objective effects of psilocybin and similar 5-HT2 psychedelics, things like LSD and DMT, which operate on the basically same neural mechanisms. And what this gives us is a very broad set of understandings of what is it likely that psilocybin did over human evolution and adaptation, not only individually and in terms of population genetics, 
but ultimately in terms of the evolution of culture. And what we have today is, is a lot of data that indicates a broad set of effects that would have produced an enhanced sociality and participation in the cultural niche. So recently, Jose Arce and I published an article called Psychedelic Sociality and Human Evolution. And there we've summarized a wide range of clinical and laboratory studies that suggest that McKenna was just beginning to fathom what it is that is likely the effects of psilocybin on human evolution. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a ton there. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I first want to describe time scale because I think to really understand this idea of evolution, we have to make sure we know that there's a lot going on, but it's over a very, very, very long time period. And, and so like, where, where do you think the stoned ape theory or hypothesis, we can talk about, you know, the difference between those terms, but the stoned ape theory, what is that time scale? When does it begin? Is it, you know, a few thousand years ago? Is it 10,000 millions? What, what time scale are we actually looking on that we're evaluating human behaviors change? Well, I think that the influences began pretty much as soon as we hit the savannah. Uh, once we were spending all of our time down on the ground, you know, following ungulates, uh, cow-like animals, uh, human or hominid ancestors began an incidental consumption of psilocybin mushrooms. And given what we know about the role of the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor in stress responses, it leads me to conclude that we began a, a sort of a, a passive set of adaptations to the effects of these exogenous neurotransmitters. And what, what I mean by this term is that there are substances that basically function the same as our neurotransmitters like serotonin, but they come from environmental sources. And once we began consuming those, we began to have enhanced ability to deal with stress by constructing active adaptations to stressful circumstances, changing the circumstances, changing how we understood the circumstances, changing how we dealt with those circumstances. So I would say that the evolutionary effects began perhaps as long as 5 million years ago for, for reasons that I, I want to completely explain now, but I'll, I will bring in another perspective here is that about one to 2 million years ago, humans show evidence of a highly evolved mimetic complex the ability to entrain the body to rhythm, to produce dance and music and enactment and mime and pantomime and, and theater and drama. And I think by this time, psilocybin mushrooms were thoroughly integrated into ancient ritual behaviors that would have expanded the, the hominid overnight ritualization complex of singing and dancing, et cetera, into something that was far more. And I think, you know, one to two million years ago, we have to begin to entertain the notion of visionary experiences, shamanic ritual, mythologies, and other kinds of conceptual frameworks inspired by the experiences produced by psilocybin. Um, but these influences didn't stop then. I mean, what we know from scattered data from around the world is that there is evidence of entheogenic mushroom cults on every continent. There's, you know, mostly evidenced in petroglyphs, uh, but also evidenced in sculptures, in metalwork, et cetera. Um, I uh, 
2019, I did a special issue of the Journal of Psychedelic Studies on uh, psychedelics and prehistory and world religions. And what my introduction and the some dozen cont contributions show is that there's widespread evidence of the use of mushrooms at the origins of Buddhism, of Hinduism, uh, even Christianity, of the religions of the Americas, even Mormonism seems to have been an entheogenic inspired religion. So these effects have continued to stimulate cultural adaptations all the way up into the near present. So my general notion would be is that, you know, psilocybin began to affect biological evolution 5 million years ago. It was well discussed with a whole new set of cognitive capacities with the mimetic complex one to 2 million years ago. It continued through up to the near present and entheogenic cults and shamanic practices found around the world. So it's ancient and it's recent, and it may even be future. Uh, I think that once we understand exactly how these you know, exogenous neurotransmitters affect human cognition, emotions, behavior, interpersonal relations, uh, this evolutionary capacity has not been exhausted. We still have a contemporary capacity to employ these substances for a very different set of future circumstances for humanity. And Tom Roberts has made this point very powerfully. He says, look at the Protestant Reformation and the radical transformation it produced in religion and society. He says, the entheogenic Reformation is still to come, and it will totally outstrip the effects of the Protestant Reformation, when all the religions of the world recognize that they have an entheogenic past, that these sacraments are a universal you know, human right, and that the capacity of these substances to produce psychological, emotional, religious, and spiritual change has not yet been exploited by the modern world for reasons I won't have time to talk about today. I think it's, I think it's so fascinating when, when we learn more of these things that that explore and discuss some of the origins of how entheogens played a role in the development of um, individual cultures and religions and are scaling into what we experience today. And you touched on a very interesting topic that I've been so curious about ever since looking through your research, which was the, the uh, intermingling of shamanism, entheogens, and how shamanistic rituals are still present in our cultures today, or at least the, the cultures of the world. And I'm curious, just from your experiences and, and some of your research, um, what aspects of shamanism are still present and where you've, where you've seen a lot of these uh, traditions still carried forward? Well, let me just start back and say that I think that the psychedelics, particularly psilocybin, played a role in the evolution of shamanism for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, we would start off with the empirical effects of psilocybin in terms of producing mystical experiences. Uh, Roland Griffiths and others at John Hopkins University have repeatedly shown you use double-blind clinical paradigms. You know, the control group has a normal experience. You know, 90, 80, 90% of the treatment group that receives psilocybin has some of the most powerful experiential experiences of their entire lives. So we know these substances produce changes in how people experience the world, not only spiritually, but socially, interpersonally. They change. They become more altruistic. 
Now, the other piece here is that we can look at hominid ritual, you know, what the chimpanzees do. And it's a pretty interesting ritual. It's a typically a nighttime ritual. And uh, the alpha male does a big performance involving dancing and drumming and long distance calling and beating on the tree trunks. And the whole group gets together and climbs up in a tree and they chant chorus, you know, vocalized for hours. I mean, I see a core of shamanism here, the, the up, you know, upright posture, which may have been the real origins of bipedalism, doing you know, conspicuous displays. We have the drumming, the dancing, the, the vocalizations, the overnight activity. But what are we missing? We're missing the spiritual beliefs. We don't really have singing per se. Uh, the drumming is very limited. We don't have a full mimetic complex. We don't have spiritual beliefs. We don't have mythological systems. And if you look at, you know, what psilocybin tends to provoke in people, it really is all these elements. I mean, spontaneous singing and humming, you know, impulses to want to heal other people, experiences of energies, experience of spiritual entities. And so I think that, you know, what helped move us from a hominid ritual complex to shamanism was the incorporation of the effects of psilocybin, both as a kind of psychedelic instrumentalization, using the substances to produce certain kinds of experiences, but also an effect that constituted uh, what's been called a Baldwinian effect, where when there's something adaptive, then there's a selection for other features that support that adaptation. So once we had hominins that were capable of exploiting the benefits of visionary experiences, there was selection for all kinds of other features that supported the ability to engage in and utilize visionary experiences. And so these are the kinds of influences that are ancient. But the more contemporary ones are what we would call psychedelic instrumentalization, using these substances to encourage, enhance certain experiences, certain kinds of adaptive transformations, emotional change, personal insight, reduced defensiveness, uh, reduction of fear, you know, enhanced openness, all these other kinds of emotional states that are conducive to participating in a, in a cultural niche. Now you ask, you know, well, where is this today? Well, I'm one of these hard-headed people about shamanism and that I think that shamanism ought to be understood as a complex of behavior that was found cross-culturally in foraging societies. My cross-cultural research, uh, you know, illustrated in Shamans, Priests, and Witches, and a number of other articles, that shows that there was a particular complex of behavior that was characteristic of the ritualist of foraging societies. And this included, you know, the, the use of altered states of consciousness, death and rebirth experiences, you know, an out-of-body experience or soul journey, a variety of senses of, you know, communication with animals, transformation in animals, animal powers, uh, the ability to heal by extracting energies or spirits or recovering lost souls or countering sorcerers, and even the capacity to, to do sorcery, to send, you know, evil spirits to other people or to send darts, whatever. So there's this complex of behavior that's associated with ritualists and forging societies that I think ought to be called shamanism. Using that concept of shamanism, you don't find shamanism anywhere today. People say, well, I, I'm a shaman. And I go, well, you know, how many people have you killed? Oh, well, I'm a shaman. I don't kill people. Well, no. Forging society, shamans were thought to be able to kill people. You know, I, I say, you know, 
well, what kind of animal do you transform into? Well, I don't transform into an animal. I just, I transfer healing energies. Well, shamans transformed into animals to do their work. That was, you know, the basis of their powers. So my way of thinking, you know, shamanism ended in the postmodern world with the destruction of the, uh, what's been called the Josan, the Kung Bushmen of South Africa. They may have been the last of their surviving shamanic cultures. Today, we see a lot of things that I would call shamanistic. They use altered states of consciousness. You know, they interact with spirits. They do healing. They get information. But shamanism was a lot more than just that. So today we see a lot of shamanistic practices, but I wouldn't call them shamanism. I mean, in some cases, these are more like mediumistic practices. Uh, if we look, for instance, at Santo Daime, the ayahuasca churches of Brazil, I mean, they have some features related to shamanism, but they don't go out into the wilderness and encounter animal powers and have death and rebirth experiences. They don't get their powers from animals. You know, they get their powers from Madrinha or from uh, even the Catholic saints, etc. I mean, ayahuasca might be seen as a contemporary shamanistic practice, but it bears very little resemblance to the characteristics of shamans of forging societies. So maybe we, we need a new term like, you know, neo-shamanic, you know, entheogenic shamanism. But we shouldn't confuse ourselves and think that it really bears much resemblance to what shamans were doing in hunter-gatherer societies. So, so just to clarify there, the ancestral shamans here is the, the requirement that they have an embodiment of some kind of animal. Is that or is it, you know, I'm trying to put this into terms that actually can be real in a sense that I could observe it. And the idea that the shaman needs to transform into an animal might seem bizarre at a glance, but I, I assume this is meant on a psychological basis, uh, on, a, on a behavioral basis. And then that behavior then becomes some kind of, I don't know, inspiring behavior for the other ones. You, you, know, you, you said, you know, this is mimicry capacity and all these other humans are, are mimicking the shamanic transformed embodied animal. What, what exactly is well, happening I mean, there? Right. Because like that, that, that's like where the, the starting, the crucible of this human evolution begins is in those small little circles of interaction. Um, and, I, and I'd be curious to just kind of touch on that. Like, what did, what did it what did it actually look like? What what do you what do you maybe well, predict or? Well, I would say that you know the shamanic transformation into animal was largely experiential. Although in many cultures there's claims of behavioral evidence, and I'll come back to that. The experiential transformation began in the formation alone out in the wilderness, engaged in a vision quest, in fasting, doing austerities, taking emetics taking who knows what, and entering into a visionary experience in which the shaman underwent what was probably a primordial fear of hominins, getting attacked by animals that kill you and tear you apart and eat you. That was the beginning of the shamanic transformation, a death and rebirth experience in which the reconstruction rebirth was the animal's coming together and putting the shaman back together and incorporating within the shaman. From the shaman's point of view, the experience was that they became these animals. They traveled through the universe. They transformed personally into these animals and experiences. And you can read some of the contemporary ethnographic accounts of ayahuasca shamanisms, as it's called, in which 
contemporary anthropologists like Jovic say, you know, I experienced this. I felt the, the jaguar's paws. I felt myself running through the wet, you know, grass and stuff. You know, I could feel my my body and my tail. I mean, they personally experienced being this animal, and this was in shamanic cultures the source of their power and ability to combat evil spirits and you know go do things. They did so in the form of an animal. Now, did people see this? Well. Some people claim to have seen this. There's a widespread belief in cultures of pre-modern societies around the world that if you caught the shaman in its animal form and killed the animal, that when the shaman returned to the physical form, they would be mortally wounded and die as well. You know, well, we would say that much of this is in the realm of personal experience and cultural belief, certainly not a double-blind clinical experiment open to you know, public sure, observation. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I just, it, it just keeps me building this picture, this model of this evolutionary train. It's like humans at the beginning had a very, and, and this is just my assumption, humans had a very high level of mimic capability relative to other animals at the time. Slowly over time, specific individuals that had that mimic capability would mimic these other animals, maybe it's the the speed of a jaguar or, you know, the the flexibility of some kind of other primate or something like that. And, and so is it that they're building all these kind of mimicry models of other animals that they're observing and in the process of getting, you know, maybe the shamans teaching another community in the process of kind of displaying what those other animals do or, or building this adaptive model for all of humans evolution? Like, you know, it happens in really, really small circles, but I can imagine that, you know, one shamanic circles emanating the jaguar, one's over here emanating the eagle, you know, a thousand years later, the two groups finally meet up. One has more of the embodied eagle identity, whatever that means. And one has more of the embodied jaguar. Uh, is that, am I, am I getting the, the picture kind of right? Or am I totally off? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll take two different approaches to that. First is, I think that there's a significant role of hunting in the evolution of shamanism. And I look at this in my book, Shamanism, a Biopsychosocial Paradigm of Consciousness and Healing. A lot of reasons to think that shamans and hunting were engaged in a kind of co-evolution for the following reason. One is that in both cases, you have imitation of animals. One of the fundamental ways to hunt is to imitate being another animal, particularly the animal you want to hunt. So, you know, you take the carcass from the last deer hunt and you put it over you and you kind of move up towards the deer and they don't react to it because it looks like another deer. Okay, but when you do this, you engage in a couple of psychological processes. One is that you're trying to behave like a deer. And when you try to behave like another animal, you unconsciously begin to incorporate those properties. I mean, you, you can you know, very easily see that telling someone, you know, well, I want you to behave like a mouse. And then later tell them, I want you to behave like a bear. I mean, they're going to behave very differently. We have an intuitive understanding of these differences as part of our one of our innate intelligences. And so in the process of hunting, you also identify with what you focus on. And we have this capacity to incorporate the other. And so I think that one of the you know, origins of shamanic practice was a kind of you know, consciousness guilt feeling for having killed this other animal. And what you find reported in societies around the world is that 
Shamans had a special relationship to deal with the souls of the animals that were killed and to make amends with the mothers of the animals and stuff like this. So there's this one track of how animals sort of become incorporated into our psyche. The second one that I think is one of the most significant in human evolution is the point at which the incorporation of animals becomes a collective social phenomenon. And here we've moved from what is, you know, I think properly considered to be, you know, guardian spirits, animal allies, et cetera, that's sometimes called totemism, to what ought to be considered totemism proper, the concept that Emil Durkheim developed in his theories about the origins of religions that had to do with totemic cults in which the group worshipped a particular animal that was simultaneously the identity of the group and their ancestral founder in animal form. So this form of totemism is basically a way of creating uh, an elaborated form of a cultural niche in which humans come to conceptualize themselves as being members of the same group, the same culture, the same clan, the same lineage, and know this because they have this externalized animal image to constantly remember, to remind themselves they are the bear clan. And ultimately this becomes a very important form of social adaptation, not only in terms of giving the group a sense of identity, but also knowing separated, distal, and generation-separated group members. So if, if you look at you know, how pre-modern Africans traveled from place to place, well, because of the way marriage patterns work, clans got distributed. So you go to a new town, you ask where members of the deer clan are, the impala clan are, the lion clan, and those are your people, and they're obliged to accept you because you have the same clan, the same ancestry, the same lineage exemplified in this animal totem. So they say one of the most important factors in the creation of more complex hominid groups was the ability to be able to live together with larger numbers of people. In general, the group that has the larger numbers of members are going to prevail in any intergroup conflict. So how do you extend your identity as a group when you're now splintering, some people are leaving to find new farmland, et cetera? It's this concept of having an animal identity that creates this sense of a dispersed group that can re-encounter itself generations later and still feel obliged to meet the obligations of kinship, even if there's no real kinship there. Hmm. I have that's super interesting. Yeah, I have a follow. I mean, you got one? Go for it, Joe. No, I was gonna note or comment that it's it's so it's so fascinating to me when when we can trace back or at least look at these relationships and connections that we've had as cultures to different animals or to um, the spiritual connection that people have with whether it be astrology. And I think that may be one of the most common things that we regularly hear about now is even just your birth year and people kind of associate with the animal that is associated with that year. And some people have different opinions of it, but it is interesting how common that still is that people talk well, about what it. What it's really common is, is what's your team? Jaguars, you know, <laughs> the tigers, the lions, you know, the Broncos, you know, most most animal most you know sports teams have some you know, animal connection. I think it's because it taps into a very deep 
aspect of our psychology that we identify as a group based upon that kind of emblem. So would you say Did you that, notice there's no mouse teams? I don't think nobody is a mouse. Right. <laughs> it's not too fierce. <laughs> not very powerful. No, it's just steal my cheese. So, so this is, this is interesting because if we were to ask like, what is humanity's spirit animal? It sounds to me like it's some amalgam chimeric thing that has slowly kind of brought together all these different, you know, tigers, jaguars, things that we admired, things that we thought were fierce, things that we thought were efficient, had good high utility. And so, you know, all of this comes back to our ability to mimic, watch them in nature. And so here we are today, we've limited ourselves from our connection with nature. So then our ability to take in the other animal's stimuli, adopt some, you know, behavioral mimic patterns is absolutely minimized. Instead, you know, when we get on our phones, we see a lot of colloquial behavior, I should say, and, and, and it doesn't really change. We're not really adapting to a new set of behavior. We're mimicking that which is already commonplace. And then the commonplace just kind of stagnates. Now, I want to build this picture of mental health into here and, and the idea of healing. Because we find, you know, with our current mental health rates that they're going up. And maybe that's just because we haven't really collected much data over the past few decades. And here we are today, we're collecting more and more data. But, you know, still, there's quite the trend that mental health uh, problems are increasing. And I, I wonder if it's because we've stopped mimicking a lot of the foreign agents that we used to in our ancestral past, what gave us that feeling of power, that feeling of connection. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, as much as I think, you know, mimicry, imitation, you know, mimesis is important in developing you know, certain kinds of human expressive qualities. I don't think that its influences are the influences of, of animal totems, if you will, depends upon the actual imitation mimicry, seeing these kinds of, of, of animals. Um, I mean, certainly imitation played a part in, in the you know, communal ceremony, et cetera. But I, I think that, you know, we have an innate intelligence related to recognizing animal species and their features. Uh, Gardner, a psychologist, first proposed seven innate intelligences and added three more. But one of the innate intelligences is the ability to recognize animal species and put them together in families. You've probably heard of the Linnaean classification system of the natural world. This is an innate capacity. Cultures everywhere make the same basic distinctions about animals because when we were evolving as hominids and hominids, all the way back into our primate ancestors, the most important thing to know about was other animals. You know, recognizing animals uh, was essential. If you take a small child today and show them models of various kinds of animals and put adult animals and little animals of the same, different species all mixed together, children can take the mommy and the baby and put them together. You know, they're able to see some basic similarity that's not based upon size or physical, you know, appearances at some gross level. We have this innate capacity to understand animals and many of their properties. I mean, little children, you know, understand, I think, intuitively which animals are dangerous and which ones aren't. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, some of our friends here discovered a two-meter-long alligator in the stream where they took their children to swim on a regular basis. And 
what's happened since then is that their two-year-old daughter, who didn't see it in the stream, she saw it when it was brought back to the house dead for butchering and processing. She goes to books. She goes through the books. She finds the alligators, even though it's just this, you know, very abstract depiction of an alligator. She takes it and goes and shows it to her mom, and she's on the verge of tears. So one exposure to a real alligator activated some template that allows her now to go see abstract depictions of alligators and say, this, 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 this. And that's what she goes and says, this, 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 you know. Totally activated an innate template for recognizing a dangerous beast. So we don't need to be really, you know, imitating these things to have them stimulate our consciousness, our awareness. I think that it's clear in the context of doing shamanic kind of development in a, in a neo-shamanic sense, like with Michael Horner's you know, work with core shamanism. I mean, one of the things you do is that you do a journey to the lower worlds to encounter an animal. And people go, well, how am I going to know what animal? Well, you give people procedures, you know, just go down there and see what you find. And, and if you find it, let it go and, and see what comes up next. And then most people will say, you know, I saw it, I saw it, I saw the same animal. And you know what? I've been interested in an animal all my life. You know, I had a stuffed doll, a stuffed animal like that when I was a kid. I used to collect cars. And all of a sudden, they could, all my life, this little animal seems to sort of be appearing to me, and, and I like it, you know? So it, it's this kind of connection, I think, is more significant than getting out and imitating the animals and you know, doing the bear dance or whatever. But part of our innate psychology, I think, is to sort of, identify ourselves, empower ourselves, and connect with others vis-a-vis -vis our intuitive understandings of animals and what they provide. And in this sense, I think they're sort of like uh, templates for self-empowerment. You know, in various times in my life, I've had animals show up, you know, strangely and unexpectedly around me, you know, and I've sort of stopped, you know, I've thought about them, and I've said, okay, you know, what's this animal like? This is something that I need to model for myself for now. And I mean, in many cases, I felt like it's been very fortunate because if the mouse hadn't shown up, I probably would have gone and told somebody off and pissed them off and, you know, screwed up some relationships, you know? So the mouse is showing up in some very strange places. And when it does, I stop and say, okay, what do I need to be kind of mousy about now? <laughs> You know, it, it's the hilarity of it is, is that no one wants to, per se, imitate the mouse. No one wants to be or to have a spirit animal of the mouse. And yet, you know, I mean, a lot of the neurological structure of the mouse is very similar in some sense. And we do a lot of research on mice, but no one wants to be the mouse, which is very interesting to me. Uh, it just, it just scratches me as a little bit opposite <laughs> as, as how it should be. I mean, we, we would want to experiment on the things that we want to become, I mean, is, is, is more or less how I would think about it. But Well, look at it this way. I was sitting in a panel at a conference in which the chair of the panel allowed some woman in the audience to trigger him. And he totally left the whole schedule of discussion and started defending his positions and the big carried on. And I got up and walked out and, and took a, like a 20 minute, 30 minute walk around the grounds and came back and he was, I could see through the window, he was still arguing with this person. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna go in and shut this guy down. 
but there was a mouse standing in the doorway. It was just standing there looking at me, you know, it, like it wasn't ready to move anywhere. It was just standing there looking at me. And I was like, you know, and I took a step towards it and it's just like looking at me. <sighs> okay. I'll, I'll take the mouse's message today and I'm not going there and piss off. I mean, maybe I wouldn't have pissed off everybody, but I certainly would have screwed up some relationships by going in there and telling that guy what a, you know, a pompous asshole he was. And, you know, how, how dare he, you know, destroy our home panel by letting this person trigger him. But it was probably the best thing to do, you know, just let it go. Yeah. Animal That's therapy. Really cool. Animal therapy. True. It's, it's really cool to see some of these associations, especially the way you describe it, where there's things that we can learn from our external surroundings and, and stamp, uh, and just kind of, uh, environment. And I'm wondering from the, the shamanistic or neo-shaman experiences that you've researched, firstly, is there a way that you see these things reintegrating into Western cultures? And then for kind of the, the presence that they no longer had compared to pre pre-modern era, how do how do researchers such as yourself and the people you've referenced go about actually researching and learning about these experiences and practices that that shamans had in the past? Well, my approach to understanding shamans in the past was what in anthropology is technically called a, a, an ethnological method or a cross-cultural method. And I, my approach was I, I took a se selection of about 50 societies from around the world. And I read all the ethnographic evidence on these societies and extracted information that had been recorded 50 years ago, 100 years ago, more. So I built a database based upon what people were, you know, seeing before these cultures were, you know, destroyed and totally assimilated into modern nation states. So, you know, my, my approach has been, in that sense, cross-cultural and historical. Um, I, I'm very much, you know, oriented by findings from evolutionary psychology, from the cognitive science of religion, from understanding innate, you know, reactions of the brain and, and trying to, you know, infer about how these dynamics would have played out in the past in the environment of evolutionary adaptation. So my approach has been very synthetic, interdisciplinary, and bringing together different perspectives to understand, you know, these phenomena of the past and to make inferences about their persistence as part of our psychological structures. Um, but, you know, how can we employ this today? Um, I, I think that, for instance, shamanism and many aspects of the shamanic ritual dynamic and the cosmological belief system uh, have direct applications in addictions treatment um, in the sense that uh, the shamanic altered states of consciousness provide a kind of reset for the serotonogic system, uh, shamanic altered states of consciousness produce a kind of deep relaxation. Uh, so specific kinds of shamanistic practices, such as drumming, can very, be very effective at modulating emotions, perhaps even erasing emotional patterns. Certainly, you know, enactment in drama, dancing, and music can be significant ways of reorienting the emotional dynamic of a person. I think many people today are are highly driven by a, a, a cult music scene. I mean, there's millions of songs out there, and you probably listen to three or four artists most of the time. Why? Because it produces for you a particular kind of 
social, psychological, emotional modulation based upon the music, its type, its tradition, the lyrics, you know, the whole dynamic, its identity. So in, in this sense, I think the shamanic dynamic is still there, part of our deep unconscious psychology. I mean, I think one of the reasons why raves are so appealing to young people is that the raves replicate many of the dynamics that were part of the shamanic complex of mimetic enactment, dancing, song, and group integration, identity bonding, things like this. <clears throat> so today, is there a, a way to reincorporate shamanism? Well, I mean, I think that the whole you know, idea of psychedelic instrumentalization is an effort to try to reincorporate that shamanic past. How can we use these powerful alterations of consciousness to perhaps relieve emotional dynamics, uh, you know, recover emotional traumas, uh, reconstruct our relationship to those traumas, you know, reset our emotional dynamics at a very neurological level, such as the reset the serotonogic system, enhancing dopaminergic activity, which gives us a sense of connection and well-being. And, and the context, of, for instance, of addictions treatment, uh, dealing with animal complexes and animal dynamics has been shown to be effective for many people in changing their relationships to addictions. For instance, many people who have recurrent addictions and seem to be unable to you know, break clean with conventional therapy, spontaneously talk about this beast within them. There's this animal that wants to use. It's not them, but the animal, you know, sort of runs certain aspects of their behavior. The animal gets triggered and it goes, and they're just like, you know, passive observers. Well, shamanic dynamic of empowerment and control of the animals is one way to sort of get in touch with the beast. Not necessarily to become the beast, but perhaps to incorporate other animal powers that can confront the beast. Other animals provide another sense of identity, empowerment, control, that enable people to sort of supersede the dynamics of this animal that drives their self-destructive behavior. Uh, of course, one of the things that's well known in the psychedelic therapy literature is that, you know, the experience of hitting the bottom, of, you know, seeing your total ruin and destruction, Understanding how your current dynamics is going to play out if you don't change something, you know, has been very significant in provoking therapeutic transformation. And so I think the psychedelics are very powerful tools in this respect, whether it's peyote or ibogaine or even LSD therapy, psilocybin therapy. People often get this very clear sense of where their life is headed. I mean, hell, everybody's been telling them they're going to hell in a handbasket and going to end up in a horrible death, you know, invoking situation if they don't change. And, and finally, you know, they accept that for themselves. And so I see this shamanic potential, you know, embodied in the psychedelics as being the most powerful tool for therapeutic transformation of the world today. If you look at this mental health, you know, dilemma that the world faces today, the major problems that the world faces, I mean, the major problems can probably be summed up in depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and addictions. Add those up, that may be half of the health budget, public health budget of the world. And the psychedelics have powerful potential to address all of these. Not only the ordinary run-of-the-mill depression, 
with treatment-resistant depression, people who do, you know, pharmaceuticals for seven years and psychotherapy and nothing changes, you know. One session of psilocybin, they feel better the next day, they feel better the next week, they're feeling better still a month later, they're feeling better with three months. Even, you know, long-term follow-up shows improvement, but it's probably a treatment that you need every month or six weeks or a couple of months to help consolidate, you know, the improvements. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, we're going to see more and more and more of it, you know, and contemporary psychotherapy and pharmaceutics don't resolve the problem in most cases. Psychedelics, MDMA, now psilocybin, maybe even ayahuasca, all have evidence that they can help people move through recovering the traumatic memories, reformulating them, and reintegrating a new sense of self that's somewhat liberated from them. And the addictions, throwing alcoholism and tobacco addiction along with heroin and cocaine and methamphetamines, you probably have the biggest public health epidemic in the world. And what's the success rate of medicine in dealing with these? Maybe 10%. Some people say it's no better than spontaneous remission. But the psychedelics show this very powerful potential to help people overcome addictions. We've known this for 60 years with Ibogaine. You know, we've suspected this for a long time with LSD. We've seen it in recent clinical trials with, you know, tobacco cessation. Uh, you know, they discovered the effectiveness of ketamine, you know, almost 50 years ago in dealing with heroin and methadone or methamphetamine and morphine addictions. I mean, some of the major plagues facing humanity today could be addressed through the appropriate use of psychedelics. The evidence is there. What we need is the political and public will to reclassify these substances, not as dangerous addictive drugs, but as breakthrough therapies that can fundamentally change the life and well-being of people all over the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is so interesting. I think one of the key words amongst everything that you just described is the appropriate use of these these tools because they are in and of themselves such powerful tools and i frequently hear people who are who are deeply familiar with this space as as quoting don't abuse the medicine because as you said it's very easy for people especially within the the rave community or the younger community to access these that are still in a developmental period in western medicine and in the united states to use them in an, in an unregulated way or in a way that's not um, with strict attention to the set and the setting and the experience as a whole as part of the therapeutic process. And I know um, some of the some of the major companies, I think one of one of the largest that is working on these um, double blind studies just released positive phase two data for their clinical trials. So it is really fascinating and and hopeful to see that these are somewhat making their own their own level of a renaissance to to come back today. Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah I mean and I just wanted to clarify one thing too here, as far as the appropriate use of psychedelics, uh, the caveat here, as opposed to other chemicals, is that they are largely serotonergic, to my understanding, and non-dopaminergic more so. I mean, there's always, you know, a little bit of variability in it. But because of that, because of the high selection of serotonin, the addictive capacity with these substances is not high. And, you know, I, I think that isn't stressed enough. You know, people will assume that I mean, a lot of the popularized chemicals in society are those that affect our dopaminergic receptors, including our smartphones. 
And so, you know, our, our typical tendency when we think of these types of psychoactive compounds, psychoactive devices or objects is that they will always have an addictive cap capacity to them. Uh, when that's not necessarily true, and especially in the case of a lot of these psychedelics. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that one point. And just to kind of wrap up, we're jumping over an hour here. I wanted to ask more or less a silly question to you, Dr. Winkleman. I've just been thinking about this, but what would you say your spirit animal is? What would you say your animal is that you embody? Well, there's more than one. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, and, and I think in, in this time, in this context, I'm just going to leave it at that. I mean, I guess in part because there's not one that I predominantly identify with, although maybe there is. Um, yeah, um, okay. I was doing um, Horner Workshop kind of shamanic stuff um, back in the year, you know, 2002, 2003, four around there. And I had a very scary wolf show up. I mean, and it was red, which to me is like, well, I mean, wolves aren't red. I mean, that's crazy. But it was also in my beginning of my transition to Brazil. And when I got here and settled in, I discovered there is a red wolf that lives in this region. called The Lobo Guara. But Whoa. it is an orangish red wolf. And uh, so... Um, I felt, you know, okay, this, this is interesting. But in the beginning, it was like, man, I don't even, I don't even know if I want to deal with this animal. <laughs> sure. But, you know, it was more, you know, fear and unfamiliarity. If I had, when, when, Once I recognized it, then I was able to embrace it. Yeah. Right. Our, our spirit I, animals kind of shift over time, depending on the, the general vibe of what we're feeling. That's interesting. I, I like that, like that comment. Yeah, I had a two two curious questions for you before we uh, finish the wrap up. So the first, I think, with all of these things that you are familiar with and that you've studied and researched and dedicated so much of your your cognitive attention to for so long, what is uh, something that you're most passionate about right now? Well, um, I'm, I'm going to say that it's it's two things, but they're combined, and, and it has to do the psychedelics and evolution. And one is we really need to get a clear understanding of the roles that psychedelics played in past human evolution. And I now think that I have a very clear idea of how to marshal the evidence. And that is, if we systematically compare the differences between chimpanzee and human brains, and we examine the ways in which psychedelics affect the human brain, the chimp-human differences are going to be the same basic things that psychedelics do. To me, this is the golden key to the evidence for the effects of psilocybin on the evolution of the human capacity at a physiological level. If psychedelics and psilocybin were a significant factor in human evolution in the past, why not in the future? Where do these substances take us? You know, what is the entheogenic revolution? Is it possible that humanity's ability to overcome the rigid, dogmatic differences created by religion can be eventually superseded by sort of interdenominational engagement with psychedelics? Is the entheogenic revolution the capacity of humanity 
to discover a common spiritual heritage that takes us beyond our differences and allows us to embrace a different future in which we have one tribe, humanity. Mm. Wow. I'm, I'm very curious to see. I mean, I hope, I hope that you contribute, um, continue to contribute to that, that question because that's beyond fascinating. Um, it is such a, a, a focal point that we have a unique lens to look into for how these things are, are reemerging for our cultures right now. And I think the, the more that we respectfully approach these tools, it will have a stronger and more positive impact for, for our own future. Um, my second question is, is when we first uh, joined the call, I, I haven't been able to stop looking at this painting that you have behind you or this picture. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the snake that's coming across the colors, the shifting patterns. I was wondering if you could describe what, what that painting is and what it means to you, because it is, it is fascinating. Okay. Well, I received the painting. It's a copy, not an original from Luis Eduardo Luna. Um, and one of his friends had Andy Di Bernardi paint this for him based on one of his ayahuasca visions. And so I consider this person kind of an elder brother as a protector. Um, when Luna asked me if, you know, if I would accept one, I think he offered me several. I said, that's mine here. So mm -hmm. it's migrated from different places on our property here, but you know, now it's probably the most widely exposed Andy Di Bernardi painting in the world because this is where I do all my online presentations. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I won't, you know, try to interpret all of what's in the painting. I mean, Tom has told me a few things and I can infer a few, but uh, basically it had to do with Tom's vision and there's lots of powerful elements embodied in it. Mm -hmm. It is magnificent. The colors and I, it looks like there's so many layers to the details in there. It's, it's truly beautiful. It is. It's a, Andy Bernardi is quite an artist. He started off as a naturalist painter doing painting for botanical publications of plants and animals. And I met Andy in about 2001 in an ayahuasca retreat in Manaus. And afterwards, I asked him to do me a kind of a semi, you know, surreal painting. I have it over here on another wall. But it's relatively naturalistic, just a few little psychedelic bubbles floating around. And eventually... And he took off into doing psychedelic stuff. And that's all he does these days. Amazing. Well, awesome. This has been episode 20 of the Certain Uncertainty podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Winkleman. It was truly a pleasure to learn about your powerful ideas. Great. Well, thank you. And I want to encourage your uh, listeners to go out and look for psychedelic sociality and human evolution. You can find it on my site, on my research gate page, or go to the uh, Frontiers in Psychology. It was published there in a special issue on psychedelic sociality, mm. which is just wrapping up. There's about 20 articles there. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to post some links in the description of this podcast episode and they can find your website, some of your top publications, your recent book if they want to. So yeah, we can absolutely attach all that stuff. Great. Well, thanks guys. It was a pleasure. Alrighty. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. 
We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man.